Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and this is Your Strata Property. Thomas Gibbons is a director at McCall Lewis Lawyers in New Zealand and specialises in property and commercial law. Thomas focuses on complex and urgent transactions and projects. He has lectured on property, company and securities law at the University of Waikato, AUT University and Wintech. Thomas is the author of Unit Titles Law and Practice, a practical guide to the Land Transfer Act and co-author of Land Law, as well as easements, covenants and profits. He has appeared as an expert witness in the High Court on land development and unit titles matters, and his articles and books have been cited in the Environment Court, High Court, Court of Appeal and Supreme Court. Thomas also sits on the Property Transactions Committee of the New Zealand Law Society, the board of the New Zealand Institute of Surveyors, the executive of the Strata Community Association of New Zealand and the executive of the Waikato branch of the Property Council New Zealand. Today, I am delighted to welcome Thomas Gibbons. Welcome, Thomas. Hi, how are you going, Amanda? I am doing very well. I'm very excited to have our first New Zealand practitioner on the show. This time it's gone trans-Tasman. <laughs> yes. Well, I know that we do have lots of New Zealand listeners. So hello to all of our New Zealand listeners, our managers, maybe even a couple of other New Zealand lawyers listening in. But I'm very excited that you are here, ready to chat with us today about all things New Zealand. I'm going to say strata law, but I know you guys don't call it strata law. We'll get into that. Yep. We call it unit titles law. Unit titles law, you do indeed. Yeah, all these different terms that we have to remember across our various jurisdictions, including New Zealand. Now, I know that you, Thomas, are a very experienced practitioner, and we, we all know that now from your bio, and I've seen you present a few times at the Strata Lawyers conferences that we go to. So I know that not only are you across New Zealand unit titles law, you're also across Australian strata titles law. So I'm going to start out by asking you maybe a tricky question. How different or maybe even how similar do you think the laws in each of our countries are? Do we have some key differences, some key similarities? Let's jump in. So, yeah, the system we have in New Zealand is, I think, best described as halfway between Queensland and New South Wales, uh, probably before New South Wales updated. But we're grappling with a very different type of industry. and there's still a strong sense of, of culture in New Zealand around a unit title being an individual property. And we've only really recently seen the courts getting to the idea that actually we've got a whole building and a whole community to worry about. That's really only starting now. Mm-hmm. The total number of units in New Zealand is a lot less as well. There's probably 140,000 or so all up. And so it's small, you know, size of a mid-sized city in New Zealand, but it's not big scale. Um, there's a lot in Auckland, a lot in Wellington, a lot in some of the other centres, but people are still grappling with the key ideas around them. Mm. And what's your legislation like? Are you fairly codified? Have you got good, solid legislation that you guys can rely on? It's good and bad. So we we had Unit Titles Act 2010 a few years ago. That was a massive leap forward from Unit Titles Act 1972. Mm-hmm. The 32 Act was probably based on 
Victorian legislation in force at the time. So very first generation, um, not any longer fit for purpose. They recast parts of it. They completely revisited parts of it. Parts of it looked like uh, they were written by sociologists rather than lawyers. Right. Uh, not always a bad thing. Lawyers don't have a monopoly on good ideas. But what they ended up doing is, is putting some things in that haven't been that thought through. And probably the number one issue is the one size fits all. Uh, compare it to, say, Queensland, where they have different modules and recognise there are different types of development. Mm. New Zealand hasn't caught up with that idea at all. Um, there is one governance framework. There is one framework for disclosure for everything, whether you're buying one of two units in a small block or one of 600 in a big apartment block. The issues are very different, but the statute is the same. And that's probably the biggest failing um, and one that is on the radar for further reform. And what do you see as a lawyer? What's the fallout from that? Um, how do you see your clients struggling with that one-size-fits-all approach? What are the kind of problems you're getting? So one of the most obvious problems is around mixed-use developments where you might have some commercial or retail on the ground floor and some apartments up above, uh, particularly if they've been developed at different times. The levying system in the Act is really blunt and you can only levy one way. And so if you have different owners with different drivers, you, you can't get around that. And that causes a lot of frustration for people. We still don't have a good sense of what a committee is supposed to do and how it's supposed to be run. Uh, they left a lot of gaps in the legislation and regulations around how to run a good committee meeting. People fill in the gaps themselves with codes of conduct and things like that. But there's really basic issues that individuals really struggle with and, and find it hard to do well with. Mm. Uh, you're sounding a little bit like New South Wales, I have to say, particularly that example of mixed-use schemes. We still see a number of problems with our mixed-use schemes in New South Wales. As you say, it's commercial or retail down the bottom. It's the restaurants that are bothering the residential apartments upstairs. The newer buildings, the way that we do it in New South Wales is to have two separate strata schemes and they then have shared facilities, which are managed under a, a document called a strata management statement. So we've tried to deal with it that way. Um, but I've certainly had my fair share of uh, tribunal disputes between retail owners and residential owners. Um, hopefully that's something we'll see less and less of as developers are using a better titling structure. And we have provision in New Zealand for layered developments, uh, probably a little bit like that. We've got a head body corporate and, and other bodies corporate underneath it. But it's, again, hasn't been used much in that context, not on a small scale or a medium-sized scale for that matter. So and people are still struggling with the very idea that's the only way you set levies. Um, they want more flexibility and can't get it. Yeah, we definitely struggle with that in New South Wales as well. You mentioned there, Thomas, just the day-to-day the -day management, the role of the committee. What role do bylaws, as we would call them in New South Wales, or rules perhaps you might call them, what role do they play? Do you have a fairly strong bylaw-making power and is that used efficiently? Uh, very uncertain by lawmaking power. So under the 72 Act, we had uh, rules that were put in the statute but could be easily changed. And unfortunately, what occurred is a lot of developers setting those up in nefarious ways essentially to lock in particular governance. So uh, particular committee members or committee had to be comprised a particular way, locking in a manager for a 20-year contract, those kind of things. So when these problems came through, there are a lot of ultra vires rules uh, that were set aside as unenforceable. 
And then when the 2010 Act came in, they said this can't continue and they put most of the governance rules in the legislation itself. Mm-hmm. But they didn't put in enough. And what that has meant is that some committees feel they can put in some rules which have guidelines around governance or how decisions are made, conflict of interest provisions, codes of conduct, things like that. But there's a lot of uncertainty about whether that can actually be done because our rules are now called operational rules and are to do with use and so on most of the time. And trying to put governance into those kind of provisions um, seems a bit dangerous or uncertain. So there is a big gap, there is a big um, vacuum around where you put extra governance rules if you want to pass them and how you can enforce them. And we, yeah, we see a lot of individuals and committees grappling with that, particularly an issue when you've got strong personalities, because a lot of the time owners and committees are reasonably standoffish or apathetic. They're letting the manager or secretary run things. It's when they start asking questions that you see bigger problems arise because there's not a lot of certainty there. Mm. And how do you find the uh, level of education, if you like, of your committee members? Do they have access to good information? Where do they go to get better at making good decisions? So we have um, professional bodies. Um, SCA has an NZ chapter. And uh, we have a body corporate chairs group, and they put some effort into those things. Increasingly, a lot of education available to owners and to managers. But yes, the average owner themselves is sort of grappling in the dark and can easily get a bit confused over what the statute says, how things should be run. There's principles uh, set out throughout other areas of law, incorporated societies law, Hmm. company law and the body pins principle and things like that. So various workarounds and and the courts are certainly stepping in and saying, well, the statute doesn't say you can do this, but you still can. We think it's okay. And that's things like decisions by email by a committee. But a lot of that is not codified and it's Mm. really step by step with a lot of uncertainty uh, in the tribunal or the courtroom. Mm. I'll make sure that I put in the show notes to this episode a link to the website for SCA New Zealand. It is a reasonably new branch of SCA, but it's a good place if you're in New Zealand and you're looking for resources to certainly get started. What are the hot topics, Thomas, that are hitting you on the ground in New Zealand? Big issue is uh, remedial work. So we've had a leaky building crisis for a number of years, getting better largely. But what we're only getting now is uh, decisions around cost allocation coming through. So in New Zealand, we have different terminology where people have a big remedial project. They apply to court for what's called a scheme. And the scheme or remedial scheme is basically the court giving its tick to a big project, usually of uncertain nature and scope, and authorising the committee to carry on and do whatever they need to to get that remedial project done across common property, unit property, whatever. What we're seeing more recently is some departures from that and people drawing on um, case law around benefit, substantial benefit, and so on. And there's been a big push around looking at the whole of the building and really trying to capture the essence of the idea that all unit owners are in this together. You might have one unit owner with a deck that needs to be repaired, but it's really, really important that the whole building is up to standard and up to code. And if the building isn't up to code, it's a problem for all owners. 
So what we see as those issues work through the courts is that some owners thought, this should be for this owner's benefit. I shouldn't have to pay for this. And the courts are telling them, no, they do have to pay for it. Everyone's on this together. That's in some ways a pretty good message, mm. a pretty simple message. And it's, it's one that I'm encouraging clients to take on board. But it does mean that um, some owners don't have the, the autonomy they expect. They really are part of a community and part of a collective. Mm. That's been number one issue recently in case law. So when you're talking about applying to the court for a scheme, that's not a situation where you're dealing necessarily with original building defects and you're involving the developer. Is that a situation where you might be a 15, 20-year-old building and you need to do some building-wide remedial work? You must still go to court. Yeah, most of the time people do. So, yes, these are 25-year-old buildings a lot of the time. They weren't constructed well at the time, whether it was coastal. uh, We had a fairly bad building code at the time that didn't really do the job. So a lot of remedial issues only coming to the fore now. And, yes, what most people have decided is that it's best to go to court, get the court's approval to this remedial scheme and take repairs forward from there. If you don't go to court, you traditionally have come up against issues on what is unit property, what is common property, is the body corporate actually authorised to do this? So it's been a form of insurance for committee members. Just touching on that, it comes back to the ultra-virus issues we had for many years. So we had all sorts of rules and all sorts of decisions at risk of being set aside because the court drew such a strong distinction between what was common property and what was unit property. And the courts went as far as calling this the fundamental theme of the Act, that the two don't talk to each other in a very different concepts. And that's caused all kinds of problems around unit owner rights, body corporate responsibilities and so on. And is it very expensive to go through that court process or is it fairly procedural and easy? Not that cheap. Um, Probably cheaper than a fully contested hearing because a lot of these involve a concept of of what the remedial work is to look like and a fairly standard document most of the time saying what works are to be done, how decisions are to be made, how costs are to be allocated with a little bit of variability. Uh, What you come up against is court process, of course, so you've got to serve owners properly. You do usually have a hearing, but most of these aren't contested. Yeah, there's definitely dollars involved. Um, Varies enormously depending on how complex and how contested. But, yeah, there's still a a fair bit of owner money going into that process, and it is front-loaded. But what it does mean is once it's been through the court system, most of them are usually reasonably straightforward after that. Mm, Very interesting. What else is uh, at the forefront there in New Zealand? We're seeing a lot of issues around rules, and um, same in every jurisdiction, short-stay issues. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been a big issue in New Zealand over the last period of time. One of the ways they're being addressed is through rules which address use, so restrictions on change of use, restrictions on subletting and things like that. No one's really wanted to bring the the test case yet, and it's been interesting to see opinions for and against the idea that short stays can be regulated through operational rules. The interesting phenomenon we've had in New Zealand is the law relating to body corporate rules or bylaws has been very, very constrained and they're very easy to challenge. But the law relating to land covenants, which in New Zealand includes positive covenants, has been very, very flexible. So over the years, some developers have definitely clued on to the idea that if you wanted to restrict Airbnb or or short stays entirely, 
then you could put a covenant on the title and that will lock in use to a much greater extent than a rule which can be challenged by any owner and changed by a majority. So it's really yeah, been a big issue that people have been grappling with and trying to decide on. One of the biggest tribunal cases was around a rule which tried to restrict a certain unit being used as a brothel. And what the court said there, or the tribunal said there, is that because that was an existing use and was a legal use, mm. um, it couldn't be restricted. Something that was permitted under the district plan uh, in New Zealand under our planning laws couldn't be restricted. In fact, though, there's another decision the other way, which says a shopping centre could restrict a particular use of a particular unit because that was in the best interest of the shopping centre. So we have a situation where case law, tribunal law is all over the place. Mm. Now, on that point, uh, I'm often talking on the podcast about how I feel our legislation finds it hard to keep up with this fast-moving world that is strata, particularly where I am here in Sydney. And there's often a number of things that can go wrong in the drafting process and maybe not all the right people are consulted or not everybody's ideas make it to the final draft. And we then see our courts and our tribunals step in and try and close gaps and fix those loopholes and give us the guidance that we need. Now, I have heard uh, somewhere along the lines, Thomas, that maybe you take a, a different view and perhaps you feel that the courts often get it wrong more often than the legislature. Can you tell me what that's about? Yes. So um, legislation isn't perfect, but sometimes easy to change. We had a, a perfect example of bad legislation when the 2010 Act came in in New Zealand. Uh, there was one provision that said um, normally a decision is made at a meeting, but you can make a decision outside a meeting if you have a written resolution signed by 50% of owners. This wasn't a majority, wasn't 50.1%. And it created the issue where if you had, let's say, four owners in development, two could pass a written resolution, and that would be valid because it was 50%, and two could pass an opposing resolution, and that would be valid because it was 50%. And it was just bad drafting. Fortunately, that issue never hit uh, the court system. Uh, and it got fixed up a few years later by legislative reform. Mm. But what the courts have done in New Zealand is, unfortunately, put a lot of reliance on this idea of fundamentals. And they've done this through a filter, I believe, of property rights. So saying that some property rights are absolutely sacrosanct and can't be touched. But what that has meant is that we have situations where the courts say there is a fundamental theme of distinction between common property and unit property. We have this idea that this is what a body corporate fundamentally is. And the more they use that term, the more they get away from actually thinking through what the consequences of their decisions are at a policy level. And so what that has meant is that we have some decisions which, when you reflect on them, even for a brief period of time, you realise they just don't work in practice. And we've had decisions there around, as I said, the nature of body corporate. Uh, we've had decisions around how minority relief works, which really curtail the impact of these sections and make them less flexible rather than more flexible. There are occasional times they get it right. There, there are times they've fixed up some bad drafting in the legislation, but they haven't always um, done it well or made it easy. And that's been a bit of a challenge. So I think they get it right about 40% of the time when they make broad statements of principle. I think the courts are much better off uh, sticking to particular decisions and avoiding broad statements of principle because I just see them not think through what the consequences are. And that's uh, been a bad thing for New Zealand body corporate law. 
And that's why when people say, hey, I'd like to see the Act reformed, I say that's fine, but we've got to fix up this decision, this decision, and this decision because they're a problem. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear that experience because there is a a school of thought, and I I say New South Wales because that's where I am um, from certain people here, that there needs to be greater recognition in our legislation uh, and in our decisions coming from our courts, recognition of property rights, and that there is far too great an ability for private citizens to be regulating other private citizens in our strata schemes based on the flexibility that we do have in our legislation. Yeah, I think that comes back to what those core rights are that we're protecting. And I suspect it's pretty messy or or muddy in every jurisdiction. One of the good things our legislation has done is codify voting rights so they can't be set aside. and, And that's pretty useful and important. One of the things that some of our decisions have done locally recently is putting a big emphasis on everyone's got to contribute to the the well-being of the building and repairs to the overall building. And that's a good thing. I mean, I think the dangerous property rights can become a mask for everything else. Um, At the end of the day, you are buying into collective. You've got to accept some loss of autonomy as part of that. That's quite challenging to some of our Western ideas of, of property rights, where people do think of a a quarter acre standalone or an individual house a lot of the time. Yeah, I use the phrase, not my house, my castle, but my house part of somebody else's castle. <laughs> and that's that's a big mindset change for a lot of people. But then we get beyond that idea into what areas can this collective intrude on? And obviously Kathy Sherry's written a lot about that and there's some big ideas in there around discrimination and and the rights of children and the rights of people to have pets. Uh, And we do have to keep a close eye on those. But I think they're resolved through thinking very carefully about those issues rather than relying on simple principles and expecting those principles to resolve all other issues. We're better off thinking about the detail of individual issues, uh, the advantages and disadvantages, who benefits, who doesn't, and trying to come to policy-based decisions rather than simply knee-jerk reactions around what is fundamental or what is principled in a particular situation and expecting that to resolve all other issues. And we see that again in court decisions where issues about pets in New Zealand uh, have sometimes come down to, is it common property or unit property? And that's probably the wrong question to Mm. be asking. If if we insist on there being a, a fundamental distinction between the two, we need to look more broadly at what the issue actually is. Mm. It's going to be very interesting to see how things continue to evolve in New Zealand. I make that comment about infringing on property rights and how much flexibility we have in our legislation off the back of some very recent media here in New South Wales that we have had a community scheme pass a bylaw that prevents children under 16 from swimming in the pool. which is uh, one of those examples that Cathy gives regularly mm-hmm. about our bylaw making power going too far. It is too far. And that's where it hits um, anti-discrimination law um, or should hit it. Yes. And um, fundamental ideas about fairness and, and right and wrong, in my view, and, and singling out children, young people in that way is ridiculous. Uh, and the fact that some people feel a right to make rules like that for other people is, is wrong but it does come back to a, a consideration of, of what is right and wrong and why and what it means for society rather than just trying to hang an answer on, on one particular idea or notion. Mm. 
Now, Thomas, every guest on the podcast receives this question. I'm not sure if you're prepared for it, but here it is. What book has had the greatest impact on you and why? It was really difficult to pick just one book because I absolutely love books and I read lots and lots and lots of them. I'm not going to be able to name one because there are so many, but I'll give you two examples and you can use them as you will. I've recently been rereading The Women's Room by Marilyn French, and it is an absolutely fascinating read. Probably not everyone's cup of tea, but a lot to think about in that context. One of the books I read at law school that had a very big impact on me was Patterns of American Jurisprudence, because mm-hmm. I absolutely love law. It's by Neil Duxbury, and it talks about all the different American legal ideas. I'm going to start a theme here. One of the other books I read was Sue Middleton's Educating Feminists, and it's absolutely fascinating about the way our life histories uh, have an impact on the way we live. But if I was going to name just one, I would have to say John Grisham's The Rainmaker. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant book, and if anyone's ever doubting why to become a lawyer, that book will remind you that being a lawyer is a very important part of helping people in society, very important part of helping people. And um, it is a job that's dedicated to justice and uh, lawyers really do have an important role to play. I love hearing that. And I love hearing that you are a lawyer who loves the law. There need to be more of us out there who are loving what we do and a feminist to boot. There you go. That's why we get along, Thomas. Always. (laughs) Before we wrap up, Thomas, do let our listeners know where they can go to find out more about you. And is there anything you'd like to add? So if people wanted to find out more about me, Amanda, they can go to the McCaw Lewis website, mccawlewis.co.nz, profile page for me and everyone else in the firm. Obviously, I'm on LinkedIn and there's a bit of information there. If you Google my name um, and add unit titles, there's a a few things that come up. But uh, yeah, or or give me an email, thomas.gibbons at mccawlewis.co.nz. And uh, yeah, I find these issues absolutely fascinating and uh, always happy to talk to people about them. Excellent. I'll make sure those details are in the show notes for this episode. It has been a pleasure chatting to you, Thomas, and you have uh, done New Zealand proud. Tell you what, you'll be back. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?